Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm, servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone. Today is February 27th, 2020. Another Thursday blows through our calendar. And here we are again with Bill Padlo, who I am very uh, happy to welcome back. Uh, welcome, Bill. <laughs> Always good to be here, Charles. Thank you. Uh, so what Bill and I are going to be discussing today in order, there's this interesting article that Bill actually uh, found out about and shared with me. Very interesting. It's from town law professor, and this individual basically has what he calls. There's, there's a name that he that he gives for this. It's almost like a legal theory. It's certainly a theory that applies to legal situations, and it's called contrived ignorance. Now, in a nutshell, what contrived ignorance is, it's where, and we certainly see this on the part of MERS, and that's the, that's what we're going to be discussing. That's what Bill will be going into details about. It's where, essentially, you as the sort of prime mover actor A, you do not reference certain things or claim to have no information about certain things because if you were to talk about those things and you were to make representations about them in legal documents, you would be responsible to account for them. Of course, that sounds very much in fraud and can even be illegal if the thing you're accounting for is itself fraudulent or illegal. Derivative liability, we see it all the time. Now, what MERS has been doing has simply been evading the primary question. So Bill, again, is going to break down what that looks like, this whole legal notion of contrived ignorance. And then after that, we're going to go into another kind of analogical situation. This applies to bankruptcy court. Here there's a case where the certificate holders of trust, now we talk about certificate holders occasionally, um, they are somebody who's kind of in a similar situation to debtors in that if they want to try to get in the middle of a transaction, particularly in bankruptcy court, where they're seeking to go into a debtor's bankruptcy, it's been held that they are a creditor of a creditor, meaning the only creditor that they could ostensibly be connected to would be the securitized trust nominal trustee supposedly in control of all the funny money mortgage loans in a given securitized trust. 
And because they're not in, quote, privity with the debtor, that would be an old-school way of talking about this, they're not in direct contact, contract, and that is to say actually contacts typically as well, then they're not able to go into bankruptcy court because only the real party in interest, the holder in due course of the note, is supposed to be allowed into bankruptcy court to challenge anything the debtor is or isn't doing. That is to say it's supposed to be a creditor of the debtor. Uh, So servicers, interestingly enough, and I think a lot of borrowers and listeners know this, they often don't hold a beneficial interest or even claim to hold a beneficial interest in the note. They're simply essentially a payment collector for the so-called note holder, the securitized trust holder above them, the trustee of that trust. Now, sometimes they do claim to have a beneficial interest, but as Bill will be discussing, a lot of times they can't show it, and yet they want the bankruptcy courts to look the other way and pretend that they do have a legal right to be there. And then finally, uh, time permitting, we'll be discussing very interesting development that, again, Bill kind of unearthed out there based on a case where deposition of a party was being taken and it was allowed, this is not even a foreclosure matter, but it was allowed in this case on appeal. The court ruled against the, the lower court and found in the second the second district of California appeals, remember that covers LA, Ventura County, uh, Santa Barbara County. In any event, that particular finding is that you can sometimes under certain circumstances interview, basically sub, sub, subject your own deponent. You know, like we, we go into in the foreclosure arena, we have a lot of cases, even where we're plaintiffs, where we'll be deposed by the other side. So we show up to the deposition. We can make certain objections. This case potentially would allow us to actually essentially put questions on the record, direct testimony, direct questions, even in the middle of the deposition, and Bill's going to go into that as well. So, Bill, why don't you uh, start us off here with the MERS situation? Well, sure, and I, the article that I uh, sent over that you posted on here, I'd recommend it's a really good read for anybody. Again, it's uh, the author is David Lubin, L-U-B-A-N, out of Georgetown University Law Center, and it's titled Contrived Ignorance. And really what this article talks about is it's the, it's the roadmap and it's the explanation of just how this game is played. And it really is a crystal clear explanation of what they're getting away with by the use and the, or the creation and the use of MERS. I mean, this is how MERS is hatched. This is exactly the roadmap and what they're uh, utilizing to get away with, you know, so much of the, uh, the, the scheme and, and, uh, uh, you know, lies and fabricated documents, you name it, all across the country for all these years. Okay, this is this is their playbook. So the reason why, uh, you know, I'm digging around and I, I came upon this article is that, you know, we talked about how many times these verbal witnesses and everybody, when you depose them or you get into discovery or whatnot, they have no, uh, or they claim, they have no personal knowledge of anything. And after a while, this really 
isn't about just a lack of knowledge. It's almost it's willful ignorance. Okay, there's and there's a big difference that's kind of explained by the uh, the author of the article. That's very interesting. But as it pertains to example with with MERS, is that you know I, I've got testimony uh, provided by MERS uh, in a case where they flat out admit that they can't. They have no information as to what entity uh, is or has ever been the holder of due course of the subject note. Right? So they they don't know how to even verify or find out who that party is that is the owner of the note. Not just holder, but the owner of the note. And they make all kinds of crystal clear admissions that um, – they don't have. Uh, they don't. They don't negotiate the notes. Obviously, they don't transfer the notes. They don't do any of the verification things. There's no way for them to verify this type of information. But yet, they're getting these presumptions and filing millions of these uh, prerequisite assignments. For example, claiming that they're transferring uh, the, the de- deeds of trust and the notes or the mortgages and the notes to get to the next level of carrying out the foreclosure process. And and so it's 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 very telling and this kind of plays into the third subject tonight about use of evidence in other cases or deposition testimony in other cases that have a similar set of facts using that in other jurisdictions. Because you know, everyone out there who's been through this foreclosure mess for a long period of time uh, understands how they're gaming the system uh, by, you know, covering and concealing, or I shouldn't say covering and concealing, but not being able to, uh, when homeowners and borrowers are trying to fight, defend, or prosecute, they're not oftentimes able to bring some incredible testimony or evidence from other cases into their current case to say, look, um, and I'll use an example, Cynthia Riley, who everyone's heard of on the Washington Mutual Notes and her endorsements. Um, The way they game the system is they hide and protect her from ever having to be deposed or to testify ever again, claiming that if she were required to testify in every single case across the country, she would be more or less a career witness, and uh, she wouldn't be getting compensated, and there's no way she could you know, uh, deal with the onslaught of requests and subpoenas and all that sort of thing. But on the flip side, they want to uh, keep her previous testimony and her depositions out of the case and, and courts from having any impact on uh, on testimony that she gives that's directly related to hundreds and thousands, hundreds or thousands of other cases. So, for example, if you had a 2007 endorsed note of WAMU with Riley's endorsement on it, she testified that she left Washington Mutual in November 11th of 2006 and subsequently did not come back until she was rehired by Chase in 2009. So there's this issue where she testified she never worked for example, in uh, Florence, South Carolina, where these notes were uh, sent to with the mortgages, so on and so forth. So they've been able to block the use of that testimony um, in in cases. And and the same goes with uh, the infamous Kemp v. Countrywide case um, out of Massachusetts, where 
Countrywide Executive Linda DiMartini testified very early in this whole foreclosure crisis that not only were the notes not delivered to the countrywide trusts as they were stated in the pooling and servicing agreements or whatnot, but that from 2006 to 2009, I believe, is her testimony that no endorsements were placed on these notes. All right, so that's pretty critical information uh, and critical testimony that could potentially help you know, countless people in uh, foreclosure cases around the country, but especially in California, because this case we're about to talk to at the end is a California decision. But I think this has the ability of being a huge game changer in foreclosure litigation um, because of, of a number of different reasons. Not only being able to use this testimony that has been cultivated by hundreds of lawyers and parties all across the country over the last decade. There's there's so much invaluable information and testimony out there that's being quarantined and isolated, so to speak. I guess those are terms of the day with the virus going around. But that's exactly what's happened is they're quarantining this, this information from uh, coming back and, and damaging them on a larger scale. And uh, now... If we have the, uh, a door that's opened that's going to potentially allow this type of uh, evidence to be used, um, I think it has a tremendous uh, potential to not only help in defending, but I think it helps in prosecuting. And so, so I'm going to give an example on this, some of these MERS admissions, for example. So. If you get murders in deposition and they've been deposed and they say and make these admissions that they have no information, no way of verifying who the holder in due course is of, of the note, hypothetically, if you were to, uh, if you had claims, so to speak, against parties for whatever reason that might be, so this is just hypothetical, and you file a complaint and you make an allegation that's specific to, let's say, if MERS is, is a party to the suit, you can craft some very specific allegations now that you know they're going to have issues denying. Okay, so if you if you crafted a complaint and said, on such and such date and time, MERS executed and recorded an assignment of the deed of trust and my note without any knowledge or ability to verify who the proper party in interest was to the note. If that was an allegation, uh, it's going to be very difficult for MERS to come in and answer that complaint and with a denial. Okay, it's uh, because they've already made that admission. So um, this is what they typically do, and obviously when they answer complaints is they'll throw a generic lacks knowledge or information sufficient to form a belief. Well, that's not true. So I think this is, uh, again, going to be very useful in certain fact patterns in certain cases um, where you can make a specific allegation now that you have the ability to use that outside information from depositions or whereabouts as the basis of making that claim. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Right. Um, sure, I can go ahead and expand on that. Um, yeah, procedurally, you are going to have to get the court to, to sign off on using this case in particular. And it is going to be um, out of jurisdiction in some areas, but Obviously, any foreclosure matters in the second fellow district of California, the whole L.A. area, 
not Orange County because like San Diego, that's in the fourth. Um, that's another thing that's interesting about this is the fourth district essentially has a previous holding on this issue that differs. Uh, I think there is likely to be some sort of alignment uh, and the Supreme Court of California might take up the case. But meanwhile, the argument for, for, for having this be kind of an out-of-jurisdiction applicable holding, and by definition, if it's out-of-jurisdiction, it's not a holding. However, that doesn't mean you can't use it for persuasive authority. That is absolutely available. And on a persuasion basis, the argument is, look, if you have, you know, back to the Cynthia Riley or any of the other robo-signers or any of the other declarants, whether they showed up in specific cases or not, but especially where they did show up in specific cases and it's already on the record, wherever that jurisdiction is, it could be across the country, it could be a judicial foreclosure where you're talking about non-judicial foreclosure. The thing that I think listeners need to keep in mind is that it's not as if only the lawsuit that's in front of you, only the lawsuit that you're looking at is where this issue has come up. If there were six, eight, ten thousand loans, because you could have up to about ten thousand, though anywhere from three to six to seven thousand would be the the more sort of rudimentary number you would see in a given securitized trust. Uh, the listener should keep in mind that the vast majority of those loans never go to litigation. Now, depending on the pool, depending on how badly monetized it was, maybe there was only a default rate of, let's say, 6 or 7%, which, by the way, is a very high default rate within a pool. Uh, it, a pool can support a default rate of 1% or 2%, 3% marginal, maybe 5 Once you get to the 6 to 7 and then 10 would be stratospheric. There's no way that the pool can support that. That's why the economy imploded back in 2009 and 2010. So what listeners should keep in mind is what Bill's talking about, when Cynthia Riley or anybody else is a declarant, is describing events for the lack of actions where one can then go in and reverse engineer what happened and see that the declarations are either bogus or insufficient and therefore still illegal and still subject to, to, to being legally void, you know, with the proper court procedure, generally a lawsuit or a, a declaratory motion of some kind to find them void. Uh, again, what people need to keep in mind on all of this is that only a tiny number of these cases of these loans are ever subject to litigation. And then of those, a number are going to be potentially kicked out more on procedural grounds than substantive ones. The merits are often not reached for a variety of reasons, including the discovery issues. And yet in the background, in the backdrop, you've got thousands of other loans with essentially identical deficiencies. The fact that those loans were essentially passed on well, again, in the majority of cases, even in a non-performing trust, typically in the majority of cases, the loans, at least originally, would have been performing. 
And when the economy collapsed, yeah, a lot of these pools saw default rates soar. Still, most of those borrowers, whether they were judicial or non-judicial, weren't involved in litigation. They solved their issues some other way, even in judicial foreclosure states. Uh, before a lawsuit would happen, they often essentially settled or came up with some solution so that they would move out before the lawsuit, that type of thing. So, yeah, the reality is this is a really, really big deal. And it it, it should be the case that MERS and, and like entities, but particularly MERS, can't just hide behind this very old school sort of old law notion that, well, that's a holding and a finding in a different jurisdiction. We're not going to let that deposition testimony come in here. When the facts are that same testimony, that same omission, that same, in in some cases, fraudulent act would have occurred over a huge pool of loans. It would be applicable to literally thousands of loans. So, again, the fact that those loans didn't end up in litigation does not mean that analytically and logically one can't say that the fact situation really does apply to a variety of lawsuit cases where that can be brought into the fray of that case. So agree with you, Bill. That's a very powerful uh, kind of potential weapon that our side can use in either judicial or non-judicial foreclosure cases. Yeah, absolutely. And and now to you know to kind of touch upon um, the way that these certificate holders and their rights have been analyzed in a different setting when the investors are uh, having disputes or whatnot. The the analysis we've talked about the Cashmere case out of Washington, and there's another very good case out of the Southern District of New York. It's the uh, uh, Innkeepers uh, USA Trust, and when they the court did a very clear analysis uh, as to what the certificate holders' uh, rights are, and they said, listen, there's no direct interest to the homeowners and to the borrowers who created the initial. Uh, note instrument that was pledged and sold into the trust. Uh, the certificate holders are basically, uh, they're not creditors to the borrowers, and there's no direct standing no uh, to go after the borrowers, just as they said in Kashmir. Now, that's a very simple analysis to digest. And where I'm going with this is because the only thing to substitute and get away, if, if you applied that same analysis in a foreclosure setting against a borrower, then uh, clearly they could, they're, they're blocked. They can't move forward because there's no creditor or lender or creditor who can be identified that's entitled to enforce that note. So what you have then is the servicer who is basically stepping in and, and um, uh, claiming all the uh, – filing the claim and stating that uh, they're a holder and they can enforce on behalf of the certificate holders who have no recourse, so on and so forth, and that's part of the game they're getting away with. Now, I saw, and this just uh, this is this is the oldest trick, and they play this trick all the time, and they uh, I watched it on a videotape of a hearing uh, in a Massachusetts case just this past week, and the bank attorneys, they basically tell the judge, uh, this loan hasn't been paid on in 10 years, 
and therefore I don't see anybody else standing here today seeking to enforce this loan except us. Therefore, you must presume that we are the proper party in interest because you know, there's nobody else there. You know, okay, so why is that? And the attorney on our side did an excellent job of trying to just simply explain to the court that the there potentially are many other parties out there who could who are owed this debt who have not been disclosed because it's been sold and securitized but also the fact is that the certificate holders do not have any knowledge of the proceeding they have no knowledge there's a default of any sort because they get paid under their additional side contracts to the securitization scheme of full principal and interest payments every month so they have no they're not being harmed but the bottom line is if you apply the analysis in innkeepers or cashmere the other parties couldn't come forward even if they wanted to because they have no direct interest to enforce and no standing. What this allows is for any master servicer or servicer who has access to these records uh, that, that, that some note was signed and taken out by a homeowner at some point down the road, they can hypothecate and sell that note to multiple parties. It's like having one car and selling six titles to it. And they can have insurance policies laid out on every single one. They can control the information. And when the borrower alleges to stop paying, this is what they do. They come in and they'll, they'll claim harm. But it doesn't prevent or protect the true creditors, if they ever were to be identified or claim harm, of ever coming forward at some point down the road to come after the homeowner. They're not protected and safe. So this is how they game that system. Well, there's nobody else standing here. Well, there's a reason for that. And that, I believe, can be explained. Enough so that even, you know, I get tired of hearing uh, attorneys and stuff and people around the country saying, well, my judge and my jurisdiction, they're just too unsophisticated. This is just too over their head. They just, they can't follow along with this. It's too complex. Well, look, I mean, I think the analysis here is pretty digestible and simple to understand, and it needs to be presented, and it needs to be read and reviewed, at least attempted to be put it forth for the judge to understand, because just avoiding it altogether, thinking the judge won't read it, I don't think that's the solution and the answer either. I think this is probably plays into a whole other level of plausible deniability where people just want to put the blinders on, judges included, and they don't want to look underneath the surface, they don't want to know the facts, they don't want to really see what's going on, because if they really did, they would probably be obligated to report certain activities and report people's licenses to the bar and everything for, for playing a part in this, going back to this willful ignorance. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, <clears throat> one thing that comes to mind as you're talking about this, <clears throat> I've got the idea of applied simplicity. So applied simplicity is a kind of counter or an, an, an antidote to the contrived ignorance we've been talked about. We've been talking about. And the contrived ignorance, of course, is in many ways uh, – analogic to something I also have talked about on this show a number of times, and that's contrived complexity. 
just as the institutional players on the other side in these cases spin very complex webs and uh, create all kinds of crazy weaving patterns to disrupt the flow of information and to make what otherwise might be more visible instead opaque. And what we need to do on our side is essentially apply simplicity. You know, hence my term, apply simplicity, which, of course, that's easier said than done. It's, it's absolutely going to involve some real intention and some real direction to make and untangle all this craziness on the other side and then make it visible, make it clear, make it understandable, make it digestible. For the borrowers and the good people on our, our side who are trying to fight this fight and, and going in every day, every week, every month, try to advance their own cases and other cases. Now, on that note, uh, I will leave it there. Neil will be back next week, and uh, I will be back after that. And thank you again, Bill. Thank you, Charles. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.